Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks. Good afternoon and welcome to Valley Roundup, a review of the week's top news stories in the Roaring Fork Valley. I'm Roger Adams. A forest fire near Glenwood Springs dominated the news this week, and in a moment we'll get an update as the fire is coming under the control of firefighters. In Aspen, it was a firestorm of a different sort between local bars and a wealthy penthouse dweller who says it's all just too loud. They've been calling the police, and it just kind of points to some of the inherent conflicts between luxury multi-million dollar real estate mixed in there with restaurants and bars. The town of Basalt debated its own loud noise this week. Basalt also unveiled a compensation formula for families it plans to force to move from a trailer park. Because it's a trailer park, it has sort of really low, relatively low-income people in there. Uh, these are people who, can't, for a variety of reasons, can't afford or manage to be anywhere else. The artist Christo is running afoul of environmentalists with his latest art installation idea. Also this week, we reported on the new film Gasland 2. The story has since taken off in cyberspace, and it grew legs in the ongoing national debate over fracking. We'll talk with our own Elise Thatcher about her reporting. It's all coming up now on Valley Roundup. On Monday, lightning sparked a forest fire near Glenwood Springs. It came to be called the Red Canyon Fire. As of right now, the blaze is more than 75% contained, evacuation orders have been lifted, evacuees are returning home, and the firefighting crews are beginning to be reassigned. The fire burned close to 500 acres, though it involved no structures and there were no reported injuries. At one point, there were more than 120 firefighters on the ground and several air crews dropping water and fire retardant from airplanes. More than 15 families were evacuated to a shelter in Carbondale, and another group of residents had been issued notice to prepare to evacuate. Officials are confident they now have the upper hand and expect to have the fire fully contained by the end of today. They believe that most of the firefighting crews will be reassigned by the weekend. Their only concern, if any, is about the weather, which is predicted to be hot and dry through the weekend. Joining us now to discuss other top stories of the week in the Valley are Curtis Wackerly. He's the managing editor of the Aspen Daily News. And Andy Stone. He's the former editor of and now columnist for the Aspen Times. Welcome to both of you. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. So what was the top story of the week in your guys' opinion? I'd have to say the, the Aspen Daily News on Saturday reported that there are these people who own a downtown penthouse Right in the middle of uh, Restaurant Rose, it's called, where you have all these eating and drinking establishments. It's kind of the heart of the entertainment district. They've been calling the police repeatedly, um, phoning in noise complaints. It's resulted in uh, the Aspen Brewing Company getting a couple of tickets for violating the city's noise ordinance, which actually you know, basically restricts noise levels to as loud as I'm talking now. So these guys have this uh, residential uh, condominium right above all these restaurants and bars. They've been calling the police. And it just kind of points to some of the inherent conflicts between 
you know, luxury multi-million dollar real estate mixed in there with restaurants and bars. It kind of took off. I mean, the letters to the editor section just went wild. It, it reflects what the town, that the town really still has some spirit and some <laughs> character here. Well, so speaking of blowing up, it re- it had an effect on a, um, a city council discussion a few days later where there's an application before the board for another one, a similar type of development where they want to redo, they tear down an existing building, rebuild it, have a, a commercial space, maybe a restaurant, and then a nice fancy penthouse up top on the top of the building so just given that experience uh the mayor steve skadron has said i'm going to vote no on this because i don't think this is a compatible use that prompted the suggestion from other people on city council well well what if we just make a rule that these people can't complain (laughs) (laughs) or they have to somehow acknowledge that yes I, i realize i'm living in a busy entertainment district and there's going to be noise I'm cool with that. So that dubbed the no complaining clause. No whining. No, no whining. Really no whining. Yeah. Although, again, I, I think, uh, and forgive me for quoting my own column, but uh, <laughs> which was great, I, you know, that the simple answer is the city needs to raise that noise limit. Uh, it is currently what it's. I, I'm not great on the numbers. I think it's currently 60 it's, decibels, yeah, gets which the chart says is normal conversation. And uh, I think perhaps 100 decibels, which is the sound of a jet plane flying over at 1,000 feet, which uh, for Aspen is, is an appropriate noise for even the millionaires <laughs> because it's their planes. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I that's see the a, logic. <laughs> yeah. it's a straight line of, of thinking. Basalt is dealing with something similar to this. They realize that outdoor music mm-hmm. is part of the vitality that brings people, and uh, they've made it later in the night. Mm-hmm. You can you can ha- now have a band outside at this particular restaurant until mm-hmm. 10. This is no small matter for a town that thrives on restaurants and bars. Aspen's supposed to be a party town. I don't think we should lose sight of that. And that story about basalt was really, it was in Andy's paper. It was almost the inverse of the story about the people complaining about the noise. It was the restaurant owners saying, we need to be able to make more noise in the council. Exactly. <laughs> right. Saying, right and, on. Yeah, and so saying, you're, you're right. You know, that is really good for business for you to be able to make a little extra noise. Exactly. Staying in basalt for a moment, the, uh, the controversy over the pan and fork Mobile Home Park continues. This week, Basalt unveiled a formula. Calculus, I believe, was the word that was used in the mm-hmm. Aspen Daily News story that basically for one family comes out that they'd get about $18,000. It depends on how long you've lived there, how many kids you have. They're basically telling these people, you got to move. We're going to turn this into a park. So it's a big, complicated issue. It involves a lot of things. And at the heart of it, like you said, you have 38 families who uh, eventually are going to be told you got to move. I would note that they've, th- they're moving towards relaxing their affordable housing codes. Normally, it would say if you tear down someone's affordable housing, you basically just have to go and rebuild it, you know, uh, nail for nail someplace else. And they changed that to allow this, um, you know, this payout, which is going to come to eighteen or $24,000, which, you know, sounds like a nice bit of money. But as your article pointed out, uh, for these particular residents, it ends up mm-hmm. costing them three to four hundred and almost five hundred dollars more per month than what they're uh, paying now, and their average income is around thirty thousand yeah. dollars a year. I believe is that really enough to to get you set up someplace else in a completely new home? We'll take a short break here. I want to remind you: you're listening to Valley Roundup here on Aspen Public Radio. 
I'm Roger Adams, and with us discussing the news of the week are Curtis Wackerly, managing editor of the Aspen Daily News, and Andy Stone. He's a columnist with the Aspen Times. You can get links to all of the stories we're talking about on our website, aspenpublicradio.org. Click on Valley Roundup. The trailers aren't worth what they had to pay for them. The whole thing gets pretty complicated there. A few years ago, people were making these promises of there will be new houses for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, no, there aren't going to be. And the people who made those promises had no way of delivering on those promises. But the promises are still Mm -hmm. hanging over the whole project. And, you know, on the one hand, Basalt, as you say, is looking at whatever it is, twenty to thirty thousand dollars at most per family. And of course, the cost of building a new housing unit for each of those would be 10 times that at least. In fact, um, one of the residents suggested, well, why don't you find us a plot of land somewhere and we just move our trailers there? And apparently that's too expensive too. Yeah. Well, Andy, you um, uh, know kind of the arc of this story. It it, it began as, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there was a nonprofit involved in this, right? And it was for the betterment of basalt. And now, 10 years later, it's kind of become a problem. Well, I mean, the, the whole thing's a nasty tangle. I mean, of course, you go back far enough and you get to the, to the basic fact that there is this trailer park that was built in a floodplain. And it's been there, you know, since before people had heard the word floodplain, I guess, because it's been there for a long, long time. And, you know, it's the pan and fork. Uh, frying pan, roaring fork, such a clever name. And, you know, these trailers are in a place where they really shouldn't be. And so you start from that. And because it's a trailer park, it has sort of really low, in, relatively low income people in there. Uh, it's, there's a currently thriving Latino community in there. But uh, these are people who can for a variety of reasons, can't afford or manage to be anywhere else. And so that is a problem. And then you get, as you said, this you know, nonprofit coming in and they were going to solve this problem. And they were going to solve the problem with this complex deal that was going to turn the riverside into a park and was going to build a nonprofit home for a variety of nonprofit centers. Um, There's so, going to be a hotel at one point, the, right? Oh, but I well, think that's off the table. Well, no, there, there, still, there still is the idea of a hotel floating around, although it may or may not be someone, it has occurred to people that maybe a Riverside Park isn't the best place to put your hotel. So, but the (laughs) idea, but, you know, the hotel was going to come in and that was going to be part of the financial economic engine that made this deal possible, although those numbers turn, have turned out to be pretty shaky. So it's a little hard to know exactly whose head was where, uh, perhaps up in the clouds, but one way or another, the the nonprofit deal seems to have just shredded around the edges and suddenly the whole deal has fallen apart as it comes closer to reality, you know, as the bulldozer meets the trailer. Right, there's actual uh, deadlines in place now. Yeah, by and they're actually and they're actually yeah. actual people, actual families mm-hmm. who have actual problems. It's no longer just a, a theoretical thing of, oh, we've got these people and we'll move these people somewhere and we'll build this over here and that, 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 that. And suddenly, it, as soon as it gets real, suddenly all this pie in the sky is egg on the face. This is Valley Roundup on Aspen Public Radio. We're discussing the news with Curtis Wackerly of the Aspen Daily News and Andy Stone of the Aspen Times. For Aspen Public Radio, I'm Roger Adams. Links to everything we're talking about today will be found on the Valley Roundup page on our website, 
aspenpublicradio.org. There's also audio there if you missed any part of today's show. This November, uh, it's quite possible there will be a statewide, it's called Amendment 66. It'll be a vote on changing the formula for funding education. It'll involve sales taxes and property taxes, kind of complicated. It became more complicated uh, when the Aspen School District l- tried to look at this and say, should we support this or not? They've. It's a dilemma, and I believe it has to do with some clauses in Amendment 66 that could come back to mm-hmm. hurt Aspen. This came up, the school board members, three of them, had one of these joint meetings with the Picking County Commissioners, and, and this is a big issue. The commissioners kind of wanted to know where they're, <clears throat> they were at with this. And the answer was, well, we're kind of struggling because, yes, it's great. We want to support education statewide. The catch is that this new, um, this new state funding system that would come into place if, if this – so, first of all, it's an income tax. Uh, it's a bump up in state income taxes that would raise about a billion dollars a year for education, which would go a long ways towards stabilizing, you know, education funding in Colorado is always really tough. We have these conflicting constitutional mandates. It's always hard um, to have a good stable funding source that the schools um, can rely on. This would solve that just sort of on a statewide level, but it would tweak the formula that's used to deliver statewide money to the districts, and it would eliminate this cost of living uh, bump up that Aspen and other wealthy communities get in the money they get from the state. <clears throat> and, you know, people here aren't, aren't too psyched about that. It would, it would mean, you know, a lot of money in the long run. And, it's, you know, if you, don't, if you don't acknowledge this cost of living thing, you know, how do you, how do you figure on paying teachers So the dilemma for Aspen School District then is they see a plan that brings stability to mm-hmm. funding, but they, in the process, lose money locally. Yeah, and, and what would happen is that they would end up coming back to voters later for another local tax increase, and they don't want to do that. Yeah, Aspen has long had conflicts of this nature because there are a lot of people here who want a really good education for their kids, and because there's a lot of money floating around this community, there's uh, there are, have been a lot of resources, but it comes into conflict with the statewide needs and state mandates to balance educational spending across the state and across districts. So Aspen is frequently in, in conflict with, uh, as you just said, we have something that's good for the state as a whole, but mm-hmm. could wind up being bad for Aspen, and it's a, it's, it's a very difficult uh, conundrum. Well, um, how about some alliteration? Speaking of conundrums and conflict, how about Canyon City and Cristo and Court? (laughs) So the artist Cristo has this idea to to do this large installation uh, over a river. Uh, It's temporary, but there are concerns in Canyon City that this would, A, hurt the environment, uh, and so there's a possibility this could wind up in court. Well, I believe the lawsuit is still pending. It, it um, there was an he was gonna go ahead and do this um, at some point recently. Was told he could not. It seems like kind of a strange thing. It's you know like why would you want to do that? I mean, I guess it would be kind of cool and sort of an abstract art <laughs> well, sort it's, of sense. It's art, yeah. It's, it's art, yeah. But it's art on a very real canvas. Uh, you know, where if you're a big environmentalist who's l- looking after this river, you, you're just thinking, you know. 
I, I don't see a whole lot. The, you know, the upside downside of this uh, is not is not balancing for me. Now, while this is happening over uh, around Canyon City, it's relevant to us because Crystal will be in town at the end of this month speaking mm-hmm. at the Anderson Ranch. Uh, and I suspect that in addition to talking about his art, it'll also be somewhat of a pep rally, right, mm-hmm. for this project. I, I guess. I mean, you know, Christo's projects always stir up some controversy. I mean, you know, I, I, maybe, maybe not the one in Central Park, which, uh, which was generally regarded as a grand success, but he does these large-scale environmental projects. He had that one out in California with all those uh, umbrellas, which I think somebody got killed when one of the umbrellas blew away. Uh, it wasn't quite a Mary Poppins uh, scene, but uh, the huge he, umbrellas. And He circled uh, several islands in the Florida Keys back in, I think, the 70s with, right. with fabric. The first one I recall was uh, was that, that I'm aware of was actually here. It was, I think, the Rifle Gap Curtain 40 years ago or so. And I don't know if I think almost got it up and then it blew down. It was an enormous orange curtain, you know, across this gap in the mountains. Uh, well, I guess a couple questions. One, um, if he faced challenges in the past, it appears that he overcame them because these installations went up. That would be one. The other is, do we are we more conscious about what a project like this might do to the environment today than we were, say, 40 years ago? Um, it could be. I, I think people are certainly more conscious about uh, about river health and things like that. And then when I read the article that was talking about, you know, they were going to be drilling however many thousands of holes and putting in concrete piers and things. You know, the idea of covering a river sounds very nice. And you look at the drawings and it looks very nice. And I think it all is all pretty cool. But you talk about that drilling and then you get the other side. But let me just toss in that art and conflict properly go together mm-hmm. and art without conflict at least in, in this day and age maybe doesn't barely even qualifies as art certainly the kind of art that he's doing so i think conflict and battles and fights over it are entirely appropriate and it'll rise or fall uh, as a result of that and if I, it might be a shame if it gets shut down it might be great if it gets shut down the fight itself is part of the art so maybe there'll be some protesters that is at his speech i don't know It'll be interesting we'll, to see, we'll yes. We'll see if they yeah. come over uh, Independence Pass for that. I, w- I wonder if the people who, uh, for the health of the streams, shut down the Aspen hydro plant will be protesting <laughs> for the health of the streams against Chris uh, connecting uh, the, Arkansas Connecting River. the dots, right? <laughs> well, why don't we wrap up by looking ahead to next week, and, and uh, there's a big bike race <laughs> in town, and we're all going to feel that on Monday in particular. That's right. After uh, all sorts of discussion and months of, of debate about what's the right route and how are we going to uh, to get the logistics hammered out, it is here, the USA Pro Challenge bike race. I, w- I was just asking uh, Marcy in your newsroom if she was going to be out there covering the riots at the airport. Um, <laughs> we particularly were, were discussing the, the private terminal where people who fly in on their big jets... There's going to be a party, right? ...will, will suddenly be told that despite all evidence and everything they believe in the world, they are not important enough to simply go straight into town. And they have just flown in, but they're going to have to sit there for three and a half hours. But if they want to go listen to some rock and roll in the cafeteria of the uh, main terminal, they're, they're welcome. I, I, Do we know yet if they're serving alcohol? And maybe that's not such well, a great well, idea to there is a bar there. disgruntled uh, travelers, right? There is a bar. They've, they've, uh, they've told me they're going to have specials. They're going to have, you know. A <laughs> 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 the sitting and waiting special. Yeah. Right? yeah. 
<laughs> but you, they will be able to get into town by bicycle, I believe, right? You can take the That's bike path true. into town. So I, I think if we get some a fleet let's, of those, let's uh, get recycle you know, on of, this. Of those, exactly, yeah, get those get bikes bike. out there and let them pedal into town. So this is the third year of the Pro Challenge in town. Has it matured? Are the merchants going to realize money this time? Depends on who you talk to. You know, if you're a, a lot of the merchants last year thought that, you know, especially if it was right in front of their business and it, you know, nixed parking for the day, um, it, you have to think of it as a long term play if, if it's going to if it's going to work out well. I mean, on that particular day, I don't know if anyone's sales are going to go through the roof. I mean, there are going to be a lot of people in town and a lot of people <clears throat> watching around the world. That's seeing what Aspen, mm-hmm. seeing Snowmass. The thing about the circuit race, you know, the first day it's this big circuit race where they're going between Aspen and Snowmass. I mean, the cameras are going to be on the Upper Valley for about three hours. And so the, the Chamber of Commerce folks are very excited about that. It's basically a three-hour commercial for Aspen as far as they're concerned. Put it in a little bit of context if I can. Uh, it makes me think of the World Cup ski races. Um, once upon a time, Aspen had America's Downhill um, on Aspen Mountain, and it was an incredible event. And then one way or another, Aspen decided, oh, we don't really care about these World Cup races and let the races go. And then people realized that giving up those races was a really bad thing, even though it may or may not have had a direct impact during the races. Maybe those racers didn't hang out in the bars, but mm-hmm. the fact of the matter was it was great publicity for Aspen. It brought people to town. It brought attention to town. Mm-hmm. But we never got the downhill back. Yeah, vale got it. Vale got the downhill, and America's downhill, you know, we have a great course uh, here, but it doesn't get used for World Cup anymore. We've lost that, and I think this bicycle race has some analogies there. So if you are uh, an economic uh, planner or thinking about economics in this in this town, if you take the macro view, this is a good thing because it puts, as you say, it's a three-hour commercial. Mm-hmm. If you're a merchant, you might not make money. In fact, you might lose money on the day of. Right, but merchants hopefully can take a semi-macro view. I hope they can because, yes, you don't make a lot of money right that day, but if it's good for the town overall, it should be good for everybody who does business here. Well, thank you both for coming in. A pleasure. Thanks for having us. Andy Stone is the former editor and now columnist for the Aspen Times. Curtis Wackerly is the managing editor of the Aspen Daily News. This is Valley Roundup. This week, our reporter Elise Thatcher did a story about the new documentary Gasland 2, which was screened on Monday by Aspen Film. Following on the heels of Gasland, the movie is an indictment of oil and gas drilling and, in particular, of hydraulic fracturing or fracking. The film's director, Josh Fox, is also under fire for his work by critics who claim that he plays fast and loose with the facts. Elise did an interview with Mr. Fox and with some of his critics. The story then grew legs on the Internet and has become a point of discussion about Fox and his methods. Elise joins us now. Welcome. Hi, Roger. As of yesterday, the conservative news site, The Daily Caller, had written a piece about your interview with Josh Fox, and it's getting bounced around on Twitter and Facebook. What's the latest development? 
Well, we just heard from Josh Fox uh, through another person this afternoon, and we heard a follow-up about a question that was raised regarding his involvement, Josh Fox's involvement in lease negotiations before his film. So, you know, there's kind of a nitty-gritty backstory here, but basically what it comes down to is critics, many of whom are in the oil and gas industry, have said that Gasland 1 unfairly portrayed um, oil and gas practices without really consulting their side of the story. And part of the response to the film has been general anger, but also um, pointing out certain things and saying, but this doesn't make sense. And one of them was brought up in a documentary that was designed essentially to debunk Gasland in its entirety. Um, and in that film, which is called Frack Nation, they bring up that the lease that's shown in Gasland 1, which you see right there on the screen, may actually be a lease that was designed by Josh Fox's neighbors, kind of a collaborative effort, uh, because they, as it's told in the film, they wanted to be able to enjoy the profits off of leasing their land for oil and gas drilling, but without totally ruining the uh, agricultural side of the um of the area. And, uh, you know, this gets really murky. I was going to say, we're getting into the weeds of <laughs> yeah. details here. But the point, I, I guess, is it true that the important point about this lease, which mm. most of us don't know anything about, really, mm -hmm. the lease itself. But the point about the lease is that if he was less than truthful in portraying this thing, then it puts a lot of his other statements into question. Is, isn't that really what's at the heart of this? Exactly, yeah. And when we, I think the other really curious part of it is that when we, when I spoke with Josh Fox and asked him about this, he really didn't want to talk about this other documentary, Frack Nation. Um, he became very angry with me, actually. And um, it was surprising to me because I felt like in his first film, Gasland One, he does provide a lot of documentation or uh, details to support what it is, the message that he's trying to, to send and the story he's trying to tell. So it was surprising that he wasn't able to quickly answer about a documentary. And part of that is he felt like the filmmaker, who's an Irishman, um, went about doing his documentary, again, this is Frack Nation, in a way that was unfair and uh, tremendously unfriendly. I think at one point he may have even physically attacked Josh Fox. Okay, <laughs> so. So, so basically uh, we've got two sort of dueling filmmakers here, yeah. but at heart really is a story about oil and gas drilling, about fracking. It's it's on people's minds, especially in areas where drilling goes on, mm -hmm. i.e. the Roaring Fork Valley. Obviously, this film uh, has been an important part of that whole national discussion. And what what you were trying to do, correct me if I'm wrong, is just let's look at some of these controversies and see what the facts are. And you ran into difficulty from the filmmaker himself. Yes, in a way that was very surprising because uh, in, when I was talking with Josh Fox, he really reiterated that he believes he's a journalist and that he's he said that, you know, I checked, we checked all of the facts in Gasland multiple times. He really stands behind his work as being thorough and uh, truthful. And at the same time, you know, what I'm hearing from other folks is they feel like the story has been manipulated. It was really interesting to me. So we talked with a reporter from Energy Wire which is um, all things energy. And this particular reporter, you may recognize his name, Mike Sorhan. He used to report for the Denver Post. He uh, he says fracking is my life in the sense that he spends so much of his time reporting on it. And he says that at this point, he he feels like uh, Josh Fox has become an activist. So an activist with a camera. And, and this reporter, in essence, fact-checked the yes. Gasland movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, so where does the story go from here? Gasland 2 is on HBO. It's going to be seen by millions of people. Gasland 1 got an Academy or was nominated for an Academy Award. That's uh, pretty uh, heavy-duty backing. Mm-hmm. HBO, Academy Award nomination. Is the debate going to go away? <laughs> well, I think we both know it probably won't. But the question is where it goes from here. You know, the point of Gasland 2 is looking at the pervasiveness of oil and gas influence, money in uh, U.S. and local government. And it will be interesting to see if there's much of a reaction there, whether that plays out. Uh, to be honest, Gasland 2 also... Um, wanders a little bit. It's not as compelling as Gasland 1. And so I wonder if that will diffuse the impact that it has. But that that's up to viewers to decide. And that's a common problem with sequels. <laughs> <laughs> Elise, thank you very much. I want to uh, remind all of you listening that uh, we have all of the stories, all of the reporting on this uh, on our website, aspenpublicradio.org, including the uh, raw, unedited interview that uh, you did, Elise, with Josh Fox. Worthy of a listen, I would say. It's interesting hearing him in his own words. All right. Thanks, Elise. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. You've been listening to Valley Roundup here on Aspen Public Radio. Thanks today to Curtis Wackerly, Andy Stone, and Elise Thatcher. The download with Rob St. Mary is on a two-week hiatus. Audio of today's show and links to the issues we discussed will be posted on our website, aspenpublicradio.org. Valley Roundup is a production of Aspen Public Radio News. I'm Roger Adams. Thanks for joining us. All Things Considered is up next. Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks.